Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Listen to the Anarchist World this week. Yes, you are listening. My name is Joseph Lascar. I'm hosting today's program. This is the Anarchist World this week. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. It is broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And today I'd like to talk about Eureka. I know it's only July, but let's not forget that the 3rd of December... 3rd of December 2019 is the... Now, I've got to do my maths here. 1854, that's um, 46, 146, and 19, that's 165th anniversary. No, 164th anniversary. We'll find out anyway. It's the 164th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion. So why would I bother wasting the next 55 minutes or 52 minutes talking about Eureka? Well, the first thing I'd like to do is define what anarchism is. That's right. It does have a definition. It's not about chaos. Anarchos, without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? You devolve power and share wealth. So what's Eureka got to do with anarchism? Well, it's quite interesting. When you go into the old Ballarat Cemetery, there's a little um, there's a little kind of uh, information booth you can go into, and there are newspaper clippings of uh, the... 4th of December 1854, talking about armed anarchists and ruffians being involved in the Eureka Rebellion. So, you know, I've got a, a great deal of respect for the Eureka Rebellion and what it means because it continues to have ramifications for Australians today, not just people in Victoria and Ballarat, but the whole of Australia. Now, in 2002... My late partner, Ellen Jose, and myself went to Ballarat to join in the Eureka celebrations. We turned up on the 2nd of December and, you know, shook the sleep from our eyes and started looking around for activities. And guess what? There was not one activity in Ballarat that honoured the day. Extraordinary, isn't it? Not one activity in Ballarat that honoured the day. So in 2003, we began the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations because Eureka is quite an interesting phenomenon, not just in case of what happened and why it happened, but how we as a people have dealt 
with the rebellion, how it has been buried, although the common people have, to a significant degree, did done a lot to keep that memory alive. But we've seen that governments and uh, institutions have done everything they could to bury the rebellion. Now, I'll give you some background. Gold was first discovered in Victoria in 1851. The Californian gold fields were petering out at this particular point in time. And uh, when gold was discovered, it led to a gold rush here in Victoria. Uh, And what we saw is the flotsam and jetsam from around the world crowding into Victoria. Now, Victoria had only achieved uh, statehood in 1851, believe it or not. And the settlement, the European settlement, started in 18, late 1835, 1836. But by, 18, by the 1850s, almost 95% of the original inhabitants had been uh, wiped off the face of, uh, of Victoria. And the land, the whole land in Victoria, was actually owned by 700 squatters. Could you imagine that? The whole of Victoria, owned by 700 squatters who had rights to this land, who obtained ownership through dispossession, mutilation, rape and murder, which included poisoning and chemical warfare through the introduction of uh, smallpox to communities that had never, uh, and poison flour, the list goes on and on. So in 1851, this small colony, which was basically built on the sheep's back, and what used to happen in the... uh, 1830s and 1840s, that if you had an erstwhile son, you'd send him off to the colonies with a pack of money, and they'd use that pack of money to uh, squat some land. We're talking about huge estates, and then uh, get rid of the original inhabitants, and then use that money to, uh, you know, start a sheep uh, farm and uh, make lots of lovely money because the industrialisation, the satanic mills were in full swing in uh, in England. And England was actually making a lot of uh, profits. People were making a lot of profits through by uh, spinning wool. So you've got to remember that 1848 was an historic year across Europe. This was the year of revolutions, failed revolutions across Europe, where ordinary working people rose up in arms, formed communities, formed communes, which were basically all destroyed within a few months. But this led to a huge exodus of radical thinkers and radical activists from Europe who are fleeing persecution because of their role in those rebellion. And many of these people flocked to the Victorian gold fields because digging for gold in 1851 and 2 and 3 and 4 and is, it was a little bit like uh, buying a Tats Lotto ticket. Now, the squatters were very concerned about the gold rush and they tried to hide the discovery of gold for a number of years because they were concerned because they relied on cheap labour. They relied on stolen land and cheap labour, normally ticket of leave, men and women, convicts who'd kind of made their way to Victoria from New South Wales and Queensland and relied on shepherds living in bark huts on their estates, uh, you know, tending their sheep. Now, the discovery of gold meant that the people working for the government, including the police, as well as shepherds, 
would leave their work and flock to the alluvial gold fields in order to find their fortune. It's a little bit like buying a Tats Lotto ticket and winning first division. Not many people, you know, made a fortune mining gold, but enough did to keep the uh, keep things going. So the Legislative Council, which was the only arm of government at that particular point in time, which was dominated by the squatters, the 700 squatting families, uh, made the decision not to tax the gold that was dug out of the ground, but to actually tax each and every miner a fee of around £5, which is an extraordinary amount of money, for the right to mine for one month a very small parcel of land. So from the very beginning, we saw the, a political decision which was made which was fundamental to the creation of a resistant movement in this country and to the formation of the first rebellion uh, in this country. Now, 1804 at Vinegar Hill in Sydney, there was a rebellion by convicts, which was put down very quickly. And it's quite interesting that uh, when I talk more about the Eureka Rebellion, the password to get into the, uh, into the stockade was Vinegar Hill, because obviously people remembered the massacres that occurred at uh, Vinegar Hill in 1804 outside Parramatta. But getting back to... So the squatters made a decision to tax individual miners and they did that because they didn't want all their employees to flock to the gold fields because they didn't want to lose the cheap labour which they required to make a profit from their stolen lands and the murders that they had committed you know, in the Indigenous community in Victoria. They needed that labour and they believed that if they had a high licence fee and a system by which these fees were collected, that people would not leave their jobs and try their luck on their alluvial gold fields in Victoria. And we're talking about Creswick and Bendigo and Ballarat, and the list goes on and on. So here we have this situation where tens of thousands of people are flocking onto the Victorian gold fields. We saw the population increase by a thousandfold within about three to four years. We saw tent cities spring up across Victorian, regional Victoria, and we saw the associated businesses which were needed to keep these tent cities alive also spring up, including sly grog and hotels, and the list goes on and on. But the key was that if you're a miner, you had to pay a licence fee. Interestingly, the only people who were excluded from paying licence fees were doctors and women, although not many women took up that challenge. So you've got thousands of men, women and children, about four men for every, for every woman, who are trying to eke out a living from these alluvial gold fields, who come in with a little bit of money, they've immigrated from overseas, they come in with a little bit of money, buy their supplies and hope to you know, find that luck, lucky diamond, lucky um, gold, you know, the strike, the lucky gold strike, find that lucky nugget, which will keep them in clover for the rest of their lives. Well, as mining became more and more difficult and the alluvial diggings, the gold which, was on the, which could be found on the ground disappeared 
and people needed to dig underground on their claims in order to find gold. We found that the cost to dig gold uh, increased quite rapidly and people were not able to pay their licence fees. At the same time, what the government had done to ensure the £5 was collected and every miner had a licence is they created a police force mainly made up of uh, ticket-of-leave men who not only were paid by the government to act as a police force, you know, peppercorn payment, but they made their money from receiving a proportion of the fine which was levied on miners who did not have a licence on them. And that was the key, that miners were expected to have a licence on them constantly. And when the police raided the gold fields, if you couldn't you know, present, you didn't have a licence, you were arrested. And then in Ballarat, which I'm familiar with, the story there, you were changed to a log until you paid the fine. End of story. Now, obviously, as the number of people increased and the amount of gold decreased, and as it became more and more difficult to mine, dissatisfaction mounted on the gold fields. Now, these were not... Many of the people on the gold fields from all corners of the world were not just disgruntled migrants looking for a future. Many of them were political activists who had long associations of political movements in Europe who had escaped the failed revolutions of 1848 to the US of A and America. We had miners that had come across from the United States, the Californian gold fields. We had miners from Germany who had survived the the failed 1848 revolutions. We had we had uh, immigrants from England who'd been involved in the petition movement, you know, to uh, bring democracy, bring universal male suffrage to the people of England. We had a whole heap of people who came to this country who had the mistaken belief that they had rights. That's right. They had rights. They had inalienable human rights, rights they were born with, which no government or business or corporation could take away. So it's an explosive mix. You've got a heavy-handed police force, which basically makes its income from collecting fines. You have miners in their thousands who are not finding any gold, whose funds are running out. You have a government which is pressuring uh, people to pay their licence fee through this uh, undisciplined uh, police force. You have radicals and revolutionaries who've come to the gold fields. You've got people of all races and religions and creeds who are stuck in these tent cities around the gold fields. And all around the gold fields, since 1851, there was a push to abolish the licence fee and place a tax on the gold that was extracted from the earth. Now, let's not forget that the original decision that was made 
by the Government of Victoria Legislative Council was to apply an individual license mining fee, license mining fee, in order to ensure that poorly paid workers continued to work on their master's estates, on their huge sheep runs across Victoria. So as push comes to shove, what we saw on the 11th of November 1854 was the in Ballarat was the formation of the Ballarat Reform League. That's right, the Ballarat Reform League, which had a number of aims, which went beyond the abolition of the mining licence. And the Ballarat Reform League had ideas which were encapsulated in the idea that human beings had inalienable rights which no one could take away, which were encapsulated in the idea that human beings had the ability to govern themselves through democratic means. So you had this tension on all the gold fields across Victoria. And it didn't take long for the spark to be ignited. And in November 1854, the murder of a miner by a publican and the resultant uh, slanted, biased, corrupted coroner's inquiry into his death which exonerated the publican from the murder of the miner led to unprecedented scenes in Ballarat where huge numbers of people attended mass meetings in order to initiate discussion with the colonial government which was led by General Hotham, a retired naval man in Melbourne. So there's this constant push and shove for the next month, from the, 9th, from the 11th of November when the Ballarat Reform League was formed to the 3rd of December, December, Sunday the 3rd of December 1854, when the miners were routed at the Eureka Stockade. So what we saw was meetings which were attended by over 80 to 90% of not just miners but small business people who relied on the miners to survive to try to resolve the issues of police brutality, mining licence raids, the amount of fees which were extracted from miners who were not finding any gold, and the list went on and on as far as their grievances were concerned. Now, if you want to understand the Eureka and the Eureka Rebellion, we need to understand the essence of the Eureka Oath. Now, the Eureka Oath was taken on the 29th of November 1854 by a band of about 500 radical miners who had broken away from the main protest meetings, who on that day swore an oath which till today 
continues, continues to have significant impact of the people of this country. And that oath encapsulates the essence of the Eureka Rebellion. It encapsulates its very essence. And that oath is very simple. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. I'll repeat it again. Extraordinary collection of words. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Within that oath, we see the four principal pillars of the Eureka Rebellion. Direct action, direct democracy, solidarity, and internationalism. The Eureka Rebellion was not just about mining licenses. The aims and aspirations of the miners and their families and the small business people on the mining fields across Victoria went far beyond the simple call to abolish mining licences. And as I'll repeat again, the main principles, the four pillars of the Eureka Rebellion are encapsulated in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Direct democracy, direct action, solidarity and internationalism. The four pillars of the Eureka Rebellion. And I'll go through each and every one. The oath starts with the word we. We. Each and every one of us. We. It doesn't say man or woman. It doesn't say black or white or yellow or brindle. It doesn't say Canadian or American or English or Australian. Not that such a concept existed in 1854 or has been a part of Australia. But we. We. Swear by the Southern Cross. Now, a lot of people think that the Southern Cross is a, uh, a religious al- analogy. Let's not forget that these miners were not living in huts. They were living in tent cities, large tent cities across Victoria, especially in the mining areas, Ballarat, Bendigo, Creswick, Dalesford, and the list goes on and on. Huge tent cities which accommodated thousands of people. Now, in these days, we didn't have, you know, didn't have the internet, mobile phones, you name it, didn't have any of the electrical garbage. So late at night, when people were lying in their tents or lying outside their tents if it's a hot day, trying to get uh, fall asleep, they'd look up in the sky and they'd see the Southern Cross. Now, these are people that have come to Australia from in the main from the Northern Hemisphere. You cannot see the Southern Cross in the Northern Hemisphere. So to people 
the Southern Cross mark was a geographical marker of where they were. It reminded them that they had come to a new continent, which they wanted to be three of the class divisions and the divisions of old Europe. So we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. Solidarity. So internationalism, now solidarity. Truly by each other. Because the miners understood that as individuals, they would never win this struggle. They needed to come together, to band together in order to overthrow the authorities who were maintaining that status quo, maintaining that pressure on them as individuals and members of a community. So solidarity is an essential component of the Eureka Rebellion. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Direct action, another key pillar. Now, the Eureka rebels were were, um, broken up into two groups, members of the Ballarat Reform League, the organisation which was responsible for the Eureka Rebellion, consisted of a peace faction headed by Humphrey and a radical faction, a direct action faction. So it was an exceptionally divided movement, but as pressure from the authorities increased... And as military forces were sent from Melbourne to the goldfields in Ballarat, what happened was that the divisions within the movement saw miners shift to different factions. And on the eve of the three or four days before the Eureka Rebellion, when there was a particularly nasty sweep of the Ballarat goldfields by police and soldiers and sailors, which had come to Ballarat to put down this potential rebellion, that the majority shifted to the direct action camp. That's right. The majority shifted to the direct action camp. And what we saw is the Ballarat Reform League make the decision to take up arms to protect the inalienable rights and liberties they believed they were born with. Rights and liberties no government could take away. Now, going back a few weeks, let's not forget this was an age pre-electricity. This was an age when public meetings were instrumental to the democratic process. And what we saw is that in a population of about 30,000 the Ballarat Goldfields, there were four newspapers, 
believe it or not. And these newspapers pushed the idea of people rebelling, of people taking up arms, of people standing up for their rights and liberties. And what we saw is the fourth of state, an independent, free fourth of state, something we don't have today, was fundamental in the creation of a movement which led to people coming together to pursue their aims, the aims of the Ballarat Reform League. Fundamental. Now, these are large meetings, 20 to 25,000 people, 15, 20, 25,000 people, popular assemblies of people. You've got the Ballarat Reform League on high ground. You've got no PA system. You've got no sound amplification. You've got people going through the crowd selling lemonade and selling knickknacks and selling food. You've got people talking and carrying on. And you've got the Ballarat Reform League attempting to engage all these people, about 90% of the Ballarat population that come to these public meetings to pursue their aims. So they relied on a direct democratic form organisation. The delegates or the people from the Ballarat Reform League, the elected delegates of the Ballarat Reform League would put proposals to the General Assembly the General Assembly would accept those proposals or reject those proposals and then elect delegates to carry out those proposals. And on a number of occasions, delegates from these mass meetings were sent to Melbourne to negotiate with the authorities, to negotiate Governor Hotham, who refused to give an inch. And when these delegates came back, they reported back to these mass meetings and the mass meeting then decided whether to accept, approve or disapprove of the behaviour of their delegates. The whole mechanism by which decisions were made on the Eureka, on the Ballarat Goldfields, was one of direct democracy. It wasn't about representation It was about direct democracy. It had nothing to do with representation. It was about direct democracy. The people involved in decision made that decision, elected recallable delegates to carry out those decisions. As the tensions on the gold field increased, the number of police and troops which was sent to Ballarat, increased. And after the Eureka miners took the Eureka Oath, they set up the Eureka Stockade, which is only about an acre in size. And the Eureka Stockade overlooked the road to Melbourne. And the miners in the Eureka Stockade who had taken up arms, the armed faction elected, that's right, elected their military leaders. And the miners were broken up into 10 divisions. Raphael Caboni, an Italian radical, 
was elected as leader of the non-English speaking miners. Miners from the United States elected their own leader. And other people elected their leaders and columns of armed miners began drilling in the Eureka Stockade, knowing full well that sooner or later they would have to confront the military might of Britain. As tensions escalated, the government sent in spies into the Eureka Stockade camp. Everybody knew the password, Vinegar Hill. And on the eve of the rout of the Eureka rebels on the 3rd of December, Sunday the 3rd of December 1854, alcohol mysteriously appeared in the stockade site. Now the Eureka rebels believed that the British authorities would never, never attack them on the Sunday, the day of rest, the holy day of Sunday. And on the eve of the Eureka Rebellion, there was only about 103 miners left in that stockade. Now, the police and the armed forces had been gathering at Camp Street, which is a high point, about three kilometres from the uh, diggings, from the Eureka Stockade. And they'd been coming in from Melbourne day after day after day. And let's not forget that propaganda was exceptionally important in this battle because the battle to win the hearts and minds of the people who were involved in the rebellion was instrumental in the government's, the colonial government's strategy. And it's quite interesting to see that on the eve of the Eureka Stockade route, about two days previously when the troops with their cannons, came through the diggings and the miners began to throw rocks and jeer at the troops. A few shops were fired and we were told that the that, the, that one of the um, boys, who was a soldier, a 13-year-old, who was used you know, as a drummer boy, was actually killed. And that propaganda, that propaganda exercise continued for for over um, 150 years and the little drummer boy we were told was killed and buried in the soldier section at the old Ballarat Cemetery. Now Dorothy Wickham, a well-known Eureka historian, over a decade ago proved that the little drummer, the drummer boy, lived to the ripe old age of 57, was never buried in the grave site and had the memorial which had been erected to the little drummer boy removed. So fake news and propaganda is nothing new. So as I said before, on the eve of the rebellion, there were 103, 104 miners in the Eureka Stockade, which is about, a, you know, about an acre in size. But the stockade was surrounded by hundreds if not thousands of tents. And around 4am on Sunday the 3rd of December, the British soldiers and the Victorian police 
mainly on horseback, attack the stockade. Now, there are many stories about what happened that evening, but we all know, we were, we were told historically that it all finished within 15 minutes. Well, it didn't happen that way. What happened is, as the alarm was sounded and the miners began shooting at the rapidly approaching soldiers and police on horseback, the pikemen, mainly Irish rebels, who only had steel pikes to defend themselves with, stood shoulder to shoulder on that morning and slowed down the advance of the police and soldiers on horseback, which allowed many of their comrades and friends to escape into the tent cities. The Southern Cross flag, the flag which had been designed by the rebels, was ripped off its pole. Captain Ross, the Canadian, who was responsible for looking after the flag, lay dying with gunshot wounds, musket wounds through his guts. For the next three hours, Victoria Police ransacked, burnt and killed at will. People have been involved in the Eureka Rebellion and not involved in the Eureka Rebellion. I know the death toll is put down at about 25. It's estimated that over 50 people were killed in a massacre, in an orgy of violence where the Victoria Police, which had been created in 1853, a year previously, were responsible for a massacre, burning tents, stealing gold, shooting people up to three kilometres from the stockade site. And there are two extraordinary moments which you recorded. One is the dog that howled and howled and howled on his master's chest as the battle raged. Edward Fonan, 19, from Prussia, the lemonade salesman, a Jewish man, dead, his body riddled, a pikeman, riddled with musket balls, with his little dog howling. At the same time, women jumped the stockade fence and ran over to men they'd never seen who'd been wounded and put their bodies across their bodies to prevent them being bayoneted to death by troops and soldiers who'd run amok. Now, most of the deaths that occurred occurred after the initial battle, and most of those, those deaths were due to the actions of the Victoria Police. And it's no accident that we see people like the Ned Kelly gang rise up from the ashes 26 years later or 25 years later, well aware of the atrocities that have been carried out by the Victoria Police. But again, back to the battle site. Now, when news spread of the massacre to Melbourne, to Geelong, to Creswick, to Bendigo, there was general uproar across Victoria 
the state was ripe and ready for revolution. The governor belatedly realised that all his troops, all his soldiers, all his sailors, all his police, apart from a detachment which was protecting the treasury in Spring Street in Melbourne, a detachment of 34 marines, was up in Ballarat. And it was quite possible that, as we saw in 1776 in America, that Britain could lose its colonial possession. So the martial law was declared in the region of Ballarat. Orders were given to shoot miners on sight, and a number were shot after the rebellion on sight. Rewards were posted, and 13 of the 100 or so people that had been arrested after the Eureka Rebellion were sent to Melbourne to be tried for high treason. That's right, high treason, which meant hanging, drawing and quartering. Because what the rebels had done was unforgivable. They had flown a rebel flag. They had flown the Southern Cross. They had taken down the British flag. They had, you know, slapped down Queen Victoria and her emissaries. They had declared independence. And that's why, to a significant degree, the Eureka Rebellion continued to be such an important rallying point. Interestingly, the state was abuzz with talk of rebellion. The government was forced to compromise. They held out until the 13 people charged with high treason appeared in the Melbourne Supreme Court. And extraordinarily, John Joseph, a freed slave who had migrated from New York to find his fortune in Melbourne on the goldfields, was the first of the 13 who was brought up for trial before a white jury. And it's said that John Joseph fired the shot which killed Captain Wise, a deputy commander of the military forces on that day. And the jury acquitted him within 15 minutes and put him on their shoulders and paraded him through the streets of Melbourne to the acclamations of thousands of people. And every one of the 13 miners was acquitted. We had Jews, Christians, blacks, Europeans, all acquitted. And the government realised that it needed to compromise rapidly in order to maintain authority in Victoria in 1855. And within 12 months of the rebellion, the two main leaders of the rebellion, Peter Laylor, the leader of the direct action faction, and Humphrey, the leader of the peace faction, were elected to the Victorian, an extended Victorian lower house. Universal male suffrage was introduced within 12 months. Raphael Caboni was appointed to the the mining court. Things changed dramatically within 12 months because the government realised it could not 
contain this rebellion through force. And most importantly of all, the squatters' grip on land in Victoria began to loosen as miners who had decided to stay in the state because they'd failed to find their fortune or had failed to or had found their fortune and wanted to spend their money in the state began to buy land which had been opened, seized back from the squatters. Now people think that it ended in 1855. It didn't end in 1855. The radicals continued to be part of a viable opposition in Victoria. The Victorian Parliament, which was based on representative democracy, a universal male representative democracy, was challenged by the establishment of a radical parliament in the southern markets where the old Southern Cross Hotel was, where the just well, where the um, the former Justice Department is an exhibition street, and they continued to hold regular meetings for over a decade. And the difference between the Radical Parliament and the Parliament in Spring Street was very simple because they're only they were less than about five hundred metres apart. One was based on representative democracy, the other was based on direct democracy. And I encourage you to read the Land Convention, the report I, uh, I uh, did on the 1857 Land Convention, which was held at the Southern Cross Markets in the Alternative Parliament, where delegates were elected by the people of Victoria and sent to the Alternative Parliament. People say, why is Victoria a bit more radical than the rest of the country? It's radical because of the continuing, lingering effects of that Eureka Rebellion. It's no accident that Victoria was the first state, the first country or whatever you like to call it in the world to introduce three compulsory secular education in 1876. It's no accident the Melbourne Anarchist Club, the first anarchist organisation formed in Australia, was formed in Melbourne on the 1st of May 1886. It's no accident that Melbourne has the oldest trades hall in the world, followed by Ballarat. It's no accident that Victoria has a militant trade union tradition which can be directly linked to what happened during the Eureka Rebellion. It's no accident that we see tens of thousands of people congregate on the streets regarding specific issues in Victoria, while only a few thousand congregate on the same issues in the rest of Australia. It's no accident that in Barcaldon in 1891, on the 1st of May 1891, that the Eureka flag was flown in the first May Day march in this country. And it's no accident that in 2019, the Eureka flag is still seen as the symbol of rebellion, although although there are elements in society who want to, who think that the Eureka rebellion 
is a flag of division and racism. Let's not forget the founding principles of the Eureka Rebellion. Solidarity, internationalism, direct action and direct democracy. Let's not forget that of those people who were tried for high treason, two were blacks, one from Kingston, Jamaica and John Joseph from New York. Uh, Mr. Sorison was a Jew. There are people from around the world, different religions, different races. What combined them was their oppression at the hands of the British authorities. That's what made them into a social and political movement which continues to have impacts on Australia today. Unfortunately, that legacy has been lost. Unfortunately, the very city that uses the symbols of Eureka, the Eureka flag, to identify itself, that uses that history to augment their profits as far as tourism is concerned, continues to ignore the significance of that rebellion. And once again, on the 3rd of December, that's a Tuesday this year in 2019, the Reclaim, the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion Celebrations Committee, which was formed by the Anarchist Media Institute in 2003, continues to celebrate the day in Ballarat on the, on the day the rebellion occurred, the 3rd of December, 18, on the 3rd of December. Whether it's Monday or Tuesday or Saturday or Sunday is irrelevant. We gather at Eureka Park, the site of the Eureka Rebellion, at the corner of Eureka and Stall Street in Ballarat at 4am on the very site the Eureka Stockade was erected. We honour those men and women involved in that rebellion. We encourage you to join us at 4am at Eureka Park. The ceremony finishes by about 5.30am at daybreak. Then we have a communal breakfast. We encourage you to bring food and drinks to this communal breakfast. At 9am, we walk from Eureka Park to Bakery Hill to the very spot where the Eureka Oath was sworn on the 29th of November 1854 and we re-swear that oath on that spot. And more importantly, or just as importantly, on that day, we give out six Eureka Australia medals to activists who have devoted their life to ensure that radical, egalitarian, social change continues to be part of the fabric of this society. Now, this is an open nomination process. We know there are many radical activists in this country who have done lots of things during their lifetime. If not been honoured, you won't see them on the uh, Queen Lizzie's birthday list, honours list, or Invasion Day honours list. Men and women who've devoted their lives to the struggle for equality and social cohesion not recognised. We recognise six of those people and we encourage you to nominate people you believe whose life and activities reflect 
the ideas and aspirations which were reflected by the Eureka Rebels. It's very simple. You can email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com. That's anarchistage at yahoo.com. Just send me a name, a contact phone number or address because we always like to contact the recipients before they receive the medal to make sure they wished to receive the medal. And I think over the last 10 years since we've had 2005, which is 14 years since we've had the Eureka Australia medal, I think we've only had one person who's refused to accept the medal. And that was a politician, a liberal politician, believe it or not. So send us a name, a phone number, and a short description of why. And if you're not... You don't use computers. You can always send it to me at Post Office Box Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Nominations close on the 11th of November, the day the Ballarat Reform League was formed. So nominations close on the 11th of November. Think about it. Send in those nominations. 165th anniversary, or is it 164th anniversary, on Tuesday, over 160 years have passed, and not once has the Eureka flag been flown on the main flagpole. There is a small Eureka flag on a secondary flagpole and an Aboriginal flag on a secondary flagpole. But on the 3rd of December, not even during 2014, sorry, 2004, which is the 150th anniversary celebration, so we are looking at the 165th anniversary celebrations, has the Eureka flag ever been flown from the Melbourne Town Hall? So if you've got the time, email or write to the councillors and ask them why not, and will they do it this year for the 165th anniversary celebrations? From there, we march to the Old Ballarat Cemetery, to pay our respects to those men and women who died in that struggle. Those people who are buried in a mass grave in the old Ballarat Cemetery, whose names are chiselled on a monument which was erected and paid for in 1857 by the people of Geelong in respect of these men and women. And from there, we walk back to Ballarat Trades Hall, the second oldest trades hall in this country, in the world, the Ballarat Trades Hall, where we will be welcomed by unionists at Ballarat Trades Hall and be fed and watered. And from there, we walk back to Eureka Park, back to the Eureka Centre, to have a look at the Eureka flag and discuss its meaning in 2019 and the historical background to that flag. And after that, at 7pm, we meet at the Queen's Head Hotel for the Eureka Dinner and the Eureka Oration, which will be held on that day. So keep aside the 3rd of December, Eureka Day this year, Listen in to the Anarchist World this week, next week, via the Community Radio Network. 
evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist Wall this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events.